0: Hey, everybody. This is Wes from PC Gamer, and this is kind of a special episode of the podcast. Last week at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, I set up a roundtable with a few developers whose names you probably recognize and who have a career working on or talking about immersive sims, games like Deus Ex, Bioshock, Dishonored, Far Cry 2, And we just spent an hour talking about those games and sort of what what makes them special and also dug into The process of creating them a little bit. So yeah, we've got an hour-long conversation here. Hope you enjoy it So I'm going to get everybody to go around, introduce themselves. Uh, you can mention what games you've worked on if you want to. I think people probably know everybody, uh, everybody's name here. But let's start with Steve. Uh, hi, I'm Steve Gaynor. I worked on Bioshock 2 and Bioshock Infinite.
1: Um, and uh, as an independent game developer, uh, made a game called Gone Home. And we're currently working on Tacoma.
2: I'm uh, Warren Spector, Uh I've worked on a bunch of Ultima games, including Ultima Underworld. I worked on System Shock with, uh, with Harvey. I uh, worked on uh, Thief for about a year of a three-year development cycle, so I don't give me any credit for that. Uh, I worked on Deus Ex and uh, Disney Epic Mickey, and I'm currently working on System Shock 3.
3: I'm Tom Francis. I used to be a journalist for PC Gamer, uh, where I wrote about Deus Ex enthusiastically at least once a year. <laughs> usually more than once a year. Um, And then I started making games in my spare time, and my first one was Gunpoint, which basically started as, can I make a 2D Deus Ex? And it kind of changed over its development, but um, uh, that was kind of where it came from.
0: And now I'm working on Heat Signature, which is a kind of uh, top-down space stealth game. And let's, uh, let's go to Harvey over Skype.
4: Hi, I'm Harvey Smith. Um, I most recently finished uh, Dishonored 2, and before that, I worked on Dishonored 1. And I guess uh, most noted for the Dishonored and uh, first two Deus Ex games. And last but not least, we have Ricardo.
5: Hey, my name is Ricardo Baer. I currently uh, am working on Prey with Arcane Studios, and before that I worked on Dishonored. And before that, I worked on the uh, Deus Ex series with a bunch of the people in this discussion.
0: All right. So thanks, you guys, for joining me at GDC to talk about Immersive Sims, which is, I would say, PC gamers' favorite genre. As a as a publication, <laughs> we tend to award uh, Immersive Sims very highly, give them our game of the year. We love them. Uh, And I'm hoping you guys can kind of do my job here for me and just talk about immersive sims, ask each other questions that you maybe have for for Warren or anyone else about uh, their history of making immersive sims. But as just sort of a food for thought to start with, I want to open up the idea of anybody to talk about why they think immersive sims are especially important to gaming, whether it's to you personally, is somehow it affected your career or your way of thinking about games as well as the broader industry of sort of guiding what we hope to see from games as a, as a medium. Uh, this is Warren. Uh, I,
2: I have a, a, a firmly held belief that uh, to honor a medium and for it to grow, you have to do what it does that no other media can do. And when I look at what games can do that other media can't, uh, I, I instantly go right to the immersive scene. Uh, that sort of real time, you are there, nothing stands between you and and belief that you're in an alternate world. That is something that uh, I guess LARPing gets a little close to (laughs) uh, and and D&D gets pretty darn close to. But uh, we're the first sort of mainstream medium that can actually do that. And the Immersive Sim is the perfect
1: way to do it. Yeah. And I think that uh, is totally fair to I think we should start calling them instead of Immersive Sims, probably digital LARPing. Yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I <laughs> you. oh, Let's alienate the cool ourselves things. as much as possible. <laughs> um, you know, I, the the interesting thing I think about um, this discussion, and this is Steve, by the way, um, is that, you know, there's a couple of us uh, here, me and Tom, who really came to an understanding of Immersive Sims as fans first. Um, yeah. And then got to to work or actually you know kind of do work within that space um and you know for for me i I think it is kind of what you're saying warren that um immersive sims are incredibly powerful in that they allow you that um that full sense of being in another place not just through like visual fidelity or like it looks like i'm here but the systems of the game allow you to express your role within that space in a way that makes you feel like what you're doing is part of it, as well as just being near it, observing, watching. Um, And that can be anything from, you know, you're a a cyber secret agent and here are the things that you would be able to do and how to express that role um, when you're in this place to, you know, something that's more subtle, like Thief, you know, where it's like, okay, it's not so much about all these wild different powers, but like what could a thief do here? What would a thief do here and how do we let the the player put that on screen.
3: It's interesting because those the immersive part and the sim part are the two parts that you kind of carried over to Gone Home, right? Sure. Gone Home was not an like an emergent combat game. Yeah. But it was immersive and it was a sim and you like put a surprising amount of effort into making sure that you could interact with the world around you in the way that would realistically make sense. Yeah. Even though that wasn't kinda of core to the story or Right. I mean there's this
1: feeling I think of immersive sims are about having this like consistent rule set of how the world works and, and how you work within it. And so yeah, if if we're making a game about exploring a house, it's like, what can you you, you need to be able to open the cabinets and and turn the lights off and on and kind of exist as an and you know, intentional agent within that space, even if it isn't about, yeah, like controlling AIs to fight each other or take your pick.
5: Um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting that uh, Warren brought up Dungeons and Dragons, because just as a side comment, uh, I've always thought that uh, people who made good dungeon masters also often made really good level designers for Immersive Sins in particular, because it's like this really magical blend of like representing the game rules, you know, the RPG system, but also being responsive to the fact that the players around the table are part of the narrative and they're driving the narrative, which I think is what happens in a a good immersive sim game. The player feels like they're a really powerful agent affecting things, uh, but they're also interacting with a system of rules that are predictable and um, that they can use to make plans.
4: Yeah, I think that, uh, this is Harvey, I think that um, you guys have touched upon some of my favorite things about this uh, sort of subgenre. It's that sense of presence, exploring a place, that doesn't just feel like a series of puzzles someone's erected for you, but rather uh, a coherent place that, that you can actually explore in the real sense of the word. And part of that is the pacing. Uh, immersive sims often go very fast and, and very loud, but only if you generally only if you trigger the right sequence of actions. Otherwise, they can be very slow-paced. I've been playtesting. One of the great pleasures of my current position is that not only did we just finish Dishonored 2, uh, the team in Lyon put like you know years of effort into that, but I now roll into playtesting and commenting on Prey, which is the first game in a long time that I find myself, even on the weekends when I'm home, toying with the idea of driving in to play the game. I, in my mind, I'm solving problems, I'm considering rooms and other approaches, and it, that's a very good sign. Uh, I'm in love with the game that Rafael and Ricardo and the team here in Austin have made. But what I was going to say is the pace is incredibly important to me and the non-combat verbs. Like being able to like, you know, how can I get into that security station? I don't have hacking. There must be another way. Let me toy around with mimicking a small object and rolling up to the window and going through the little slot that that the guard asks for papers through or whatever. Um, You know, just solving all those little problems and like, I look up and it's been 30 minutes and all I've done is, uh, you know, roll around as an object, getting into a small space that I couldn't have gotten into otherwise, noticing some narrative detail, uh, you know, and it's the consistency of the rules and the fact that so much is not handcrafted but rather behaves according to, like, uh, system-wide rules that just enables this, like, um, you know, player... Toy exploration kind of process, and then the fact that it's in an emotionally evocative uh, backdrop, where you're reading about the lives of people and you're seeing the the traces they've left behind, uh, the mood is is powerful. And part of that is is that I'm going at my own pace, and like I said, often just spending half an hour toying around.
2: Yeah, there are, there are about ten things I want to say actually, <laughs> but uh, the, the two I, I know I'm the one who first brought up D and D, and then Ricardo brought it up again. One of the, the most interesting things to me is though that's a really apt comparison in a lot of ways. In some it's really not because one of the defining characteristics of the immersive sim for me is that it's about role playing ROLE not role playing ROLL. Uh and D&D had its own simulation, I guess, but uh Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were using the best tools they had, which were funny dice. And we have uh different and and frankly i think more effective ways of of simulating a world and so there's there's an interesting discussion to be had about about whether die rolls and character classes and all that stuff have a place in immersive sims no they don't Uh, (laughs) but the the other thing the other thing that harvey brought up pacing uh, you know i'm working on system shock 3 now and and i've got a team of, of people who who haven't really worked on this kind of game before and one of the things that that I have to constantly remind people about is that the pacing of these games is very different. It's not run, gun, go, 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 go. If you do that in an an immersive sim and you're really good, maybe you could succeed. But when I think about these games, the pacing is more, um, okay, I get to a place where, I get to a decision point, I guess. I stop, I assess, I make a plan. Then it's go, 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 go as I execute. Then it's stop, assess, make a plan go 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 so it's this kind of staccato thing that i find really appealing i love it yeah uh probably because i suck at go go go
3: go go <laughs> but uh but pacing is critically important in these games yeah something that's come up a lot uh talking to people about immersive sims lately dishonored 2 has kind of kicked it all off again because um you know all my friends are playing it and a lot of my friends are uh deus ex fans and have the same taste as me and uh, loving it the ones who don't i think common criticism i hear and it's by no means unique to dishonor 2 um, but all the immersive sims let you, they support multiple playstyles, and and most of the ones we're talking about support the very slow, very careful, non-lethal, ghosting uh, playstyle, which Dishonored even sort of marks out as, doesn't explicitly say it's the best one, but it gives you big checkboxes and says, yep, you did that, yep, <laughs> you did that. And those are the only two checkboxes. So it kind of seems like that's the thing you're supposed to do. And a lot of my friends who haven't clicked with these games feel obliged to play that way because they know they can and because they know it's, also, it's like morally better and the game rewards it in some ways, they feel they can't play any other way. And I know some people who actually don't enjoy playing that way, but they just feel compelled to because they feel like that you, that's how you play these games. And if they screw up, they just feel like they've got to reload. And I wonder if there's a challenge there that we haven't solved yet in terms of persuading people to play in their own way and to explore new play styles.
4: Yeah, definitely. And that—that that, I think that's less about Immersive Sims, and it's actually a inherent to stealth games, um, in my opinion. Uh, Seth Shane is a designer that worked with us on Dishonored 1 and is now a lead systems designer on Prey. And funny enough, he and I were talking about that this morning, um, where as soon as you have this perception that I could have done that better, I could have done that more elegantly, um, it does set up for a certain percentage of the player players, an obsession with um, redoing it or doing it right, and uh, the whole point of the Dishonored games and the Deus Ex games were, there is no right way to play, you can you can do this your own way, except Tom's right, there's an implicit narrative value judgment there. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's similar to the problem, there's a community of people who contacted me through Twitter, who said, hey, I know this is weird, but... We're a group of people who like to find every coin in the Dishonored games, and we think that there are a few that might have fallen through the world that can't be collected. <laughs> can you help us? And I was just like, oh my god, the, I love you guys, but the best way I could help you is to tell you don't collect all the coins. You <laughs> need to. But, you know, that they wouldn't accept that, so I did help them. And there was a coin in... None of the coins... Uh, you can get all the coins in Dishonored too, if, by the way, if you're one of those people listening. But one of the coins was like over on a rock to the side of um, Adermar Institute in the grass and we had to look for it with the level editing tools and tell them <laughs> where to go and and it in, in a way it's like if that's how you enjoy playing the game and that scratches an itch for you who am I to say don't do that but on the other hand that's definitely not the spirit you know like I would hope you'd be free to to sort of find your own path and if you want to stand on the roof of the building and look at the bird's nest that's up there on top of Addermeyer with the black bone charm in it and watch the waves rolling in that's just fine on the other hand if you want to go across the objectives that's fine if you want to try to ghost the game that's fine um but it but it is weird like how some of these games definitely set up um the desire or the obsession in players to do it a certain way and from my personal perspective i'm only saying this for me it does feel like that would interfere with the general enjoyment of the game, I don't know, so maybe it's a flaw inherent in systems and uh in uh, systems you know driven by computers that are basically optimization machines it, they're they're against the true spirit of the word play in that sense yeah I feel like when
1: like the real sense of joy when you do play uh an immersive sim, especially that you know is like stealth focused even if it's not stealth focused is the idea that um I think when you are able to let go a little bit and say part of what's interesting about this is if I do screw up and I do get made there are ways to use my tools to to recover Um, even if it's sloppy even if it's not perfect I mean you know if you want to play the the perfect ghost run then that's the goal that you've made but I think that part of the the beauty of these systems and and games like uh, the new hitman game um or you know when you play um far cry 2 or you know things that are even kind of adjacent to a traditional immersive sim that feeling of saying i'm going to use the rules of the world to scout this area and i'm going to make a plan and i'm going to attempt it and then if i didn't notice there was a guy around the corner and he sees me trying to be sneaky and now i can say okay how do i knock him out before he alerts anyone else or use, you know, far reach to get up onto that ledge so that he doesn't know where I went and then circle back around and kind of live within that mistake in a way that I think mm-hmm. um, can often be much more satisfying than saying, like, Oh, he saw me, I'm going to load my game. And now I know where he is for the next time. But that said, that's sort of like a higher level request of the player than what is actually inside the the, the rules and the possibility space of the game itself just on the surface.
2: Well, it's it's funny because uh, the, people ask me all the time, you know, do people go out and play extreme play styles? And, and what I always tell them is, you know, most of the people I hear from play a kind of a balanced style. They sneak when it feels right. They fight when it feels right. Um, so I think most people play down the middle and, and we're talking about the outliers. But the thing that surprised me a lot that's relevant here is When we were working on Deus Ex, I thought players were going to just pick a play style and stick with it. I like fighting, so I'm going to fight my way through the game. And uh, instead, very early on, I don't know if you guys remember this, but I remember watching normal humans play in the game. And I mean, well, gamers, but but I remember watching them play, and they would get to, uh, you know, like right on Liberty Island, an early choice point, which, you know, we tried to uh, reveal the choice points, especially early on. And they would get to a choice point. And they would, two things would happen. First, they would just like put the mouse down and push the, the keyboard away. It's like, oh, my God, wait, I have to make a real choice? Because games had, had trained people not to make choices so effectively that it's just, okay, I kill everything in the or I get seen by nothing. And, and we were trying to do something different. But I would see that. And then the one that frustrated the hell out of me at first was I would, I would watch people, you know, save their game at, a, at an obvious choice point and then try something. And then go back to their save and try something different and go back to their save and try something different. And in one sense, that's one of the strengths of the game that they could try all those things. But then they would pick the one that they liked the best. And that was not at all what, what I thought they were going to do. And, and it, it really bugged me for a while. But then I realized, I mean, like you guys are saying, it's like once once it's their game, it's their game as long as they're finding fun. You know, who am I to say how they should play the game? That's another one of the defining characteristics of immersive sim. You don't judge the player. You don't tell the player you know how to play
5: your game. It's their game. Yeah. you know um, it's it's interesting something that we're all sort of brushing up against, I think, a little bit that's also, I think inherent into the immersive sim is just the complexity and I think difficulty of onboarding uh, players into a game like that that aren't accustomed to it already. Like just, wow! Did you uh, just
4: say onboarding? Yeah. <laughs> oh <my
5: God>. <laughs> just <laughs> go like ahead. Teaching them like this isn't this is a game where there's more than one way to do stuff is like really challenging, and we've already you know we've made several games already, and we, st- we still struggle with how to do that. Like uh, you know, Warren, you mentioned the beginning of Deus Ex. I remember uh, when I when I let my brother-in-law play the game, who isn't uh, he's not like a gamer, like a he played plays a, a couple of games a year probably and when when we had the PlayStation version of Deus Ex i remember handing him the controller and like within 20 seconds he had accidentally thrown his weapons into the water fell off the dock and drowned and I was like oh my god like we we are not making games that are easy for people to get into at all no we are the kings of the cult classic you know <laughs> yeah But it's still difficult.
0: I think that gets to an interesting point where all this player freedom you have in the typical immersive sim, uh, it generates uh, good stories like that, sort of a bad story. But then it also, the thing that people love about these games, people get really into them, is the stories that they generate out of the game. Sort of the same way you generate a story in Civilization where you were at war with Gandhi for 200 years or something. And in immersive sim, people don't usually talk about the story that was written. They talk about the story of that time they played it and these seven systems interacted in some just insane, improbable way. So I wanna get you guys to kind of tell some anecdotes either from playing or designing Immersive Sims that sort of maybe were your awakening moment to just, oh shit, like this game or this genre is is amazing
4: and this is why.
2: How much time do you have? Yeah, that
4: improvisation thing that you're talking about is definitely one of my favorite aspects. And uh, I remember Doug Church is probably the first person I heard talking about that who, you know, we were sending my office one day and he was like, you know, people talk about their D&D experiences or their experiences in games like these as if they actually happened to them. I did this and then this thing fell over and then this happened. And it's so true, and I, I think probably the first, I mean, there were epiphanies like that with Adventure, the Atari 2600 game, because it was so procedural, but really, Ultima Underworld, I remember getting to, I don't know what it's called, the Temple of the Bullfrog or something, it's a puzzle where you can invert a, a ziggurat, um, or uninvert a ziggurat so that you can cross this big pit, and I hate puzzles like that. There are a couple of dials on the wall and I just like, oh my god, another puzzle. But I found that like, if you jump because the far lip is a little higher than the than the the lip you start on, uh, therefore you can't just cast levitate and glide across. But I found that if you jump and then cast levitate at the apex of the jump, then you could levitate across and land on the other side, and you feel very clever for defeating the puzzle without solving the puzzle. And uh, that is a magical moment in my. My life and my career, um, for sure. And then I, speaking of time to Far Cry Two, I have a bunch of those anecdotes from from uh, Far Cry Two, of course, as well. Um, we had one recently with Dishonored Two, where the Game Informer guys were there, and we had a very controlled demo that we gave people, um, where there are a bunch of overseers executing a heretic, um, and there was a certain way we did it just before the guy pulled the uh, on the firing squad before he pulled the trigger we used Emily's far reach to yank him up to the balcony where we were at and anyway the demo went super well they loved the game but they said hey our heads were down we we're riding can you just run through it one more time so dinga our lead designer dinga bakaba was like hey you know what i'm g- you guys have already seen the game you like the game you get the game i'm going to just leave the beaten path and improvise here and do some stuff that that maybe isn't as expected um and so you know he went back to the firing squad scene, and he used Emily's domino power uh, to link the heretic in front of the firing squad, which with the guy who's about to pull the trigger, and we had no idea what was going to happen because we literally didn't set that up, right? We didn't we didn't say explicitly in the code anywhere. We just said if you're dominoed to someone else, you take the the damaged stem type that they receive or whatever and so the the guy at the firing squad like pulled the trigger and killed the heretic and it killed him at the same time and everybody in the room their heads just popped they were just like holy shit and what they didn't realize at the time was we had no preparation for that dinga was worried even as he tried it that maybe for some reason it wouldn't work or whatever but those like improvisational moments it, it, as Ricardo said, it's hard to train the players to play games like this, but once they do, especially if they'll play a second time, if you go play System Shock or Far Cry 2 or Prey or Dishonored uh, a second time, the intimidation of learning the systems and knowing the game space is gone, and you get back to that joy that Steve Gaynor was talking about, where you're just, you're quote-unquote playing at this point. You're just improvising and, and experimenting, and it's, it's, it's beautiful.
5: And Harvey, if I could just piggyback really quick off of that, I know exactly the moment you're talking about, because um, I played through Dishonored 2 with my daughter, who's never played a game like that before. And it was so amazing to just see the game through her her eyes. She's never played an immersive sim. Uh, and that specific scene, I did the same thing with the domino thing. And it just like, it was a, a magical experience to her, for, uh, to her that... Something like that could even happen, and that then afterwards the guards were baffled. They were like, Someone's here, there's a murderer around. Well, everyone look search the area. It was just it was really cool to see someone experience that for the first time.
4: That's really gratifying to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I, I my something that is something that's interesting
1: about um, Immersive Sims is that oftentimes, like you guys are talking about, players will find exploits that are just a legitimate combination of systemic interactions that the designers weren't um, expecting. And you know I, I feel like the kind of classic uh, example is using wall mines to climb walls in Deus Ex and so forth. So when I was playing Dishonored 2, um, I really liked doing the slide move, and also I'm playing totally um, non-lethally. Um, and at some point, I was like, can I can I do a non-lethal takedown on a guy while I'm sliding into him? And so I just tried it out. And I found that beautifully, you guys have a whole set of custom animations for doing a non-lethal takedown while sliding. But when I found that, I was like, that's cool. And then I thought through how the systems worked. I'm like, wait, this is an instant non-lethal takedown on a guy, whether he's aggro or unaware, which is the only way, aside from like a trank dart, that you can non-lethally take down a guy like instantly like no matter what state they're in because if they're aggro on you you have to like deflect their blow and then take them out and at that point i realized the only way i'm going to defeat anyone for the rest of the game is by sliding into them (laughs) and and knocking their head against the ground and so that was about the midpoint through the campaign and for the rest of the game my entire playstyle was about how do i set up this encounter where there's like three patrollers around and like, like you were saying, maybe domino all three of them together so I can just slide tackle into one of them and they all get knocked out or you know X, Y, Z. But setting up those challenges for yourself of saying, oh wait, here's this edge case of how all these systems interact and that allows me to act like a freaking weirdo, <laughs> but the game supports it. And it, it's an expression of kind of, um, I guess there's the satisfaction in the robustness of saying like, yes, I'm doing something totally strange and just sort of like comical. But the game is there for it, and, and it's actually a legitimate way to play, even though that is probably not like something that QA was going through, being like, so let's do an all-slide tackle around and make sure that it <laughs> doesn't break anything. You know? It's
3: funny how when you actually, in, once you're immersed in these games, you just, learning the rules and then using those rules becomes uh, entirely uh, what your brain is occupied with, and you don't really care whether it's realistic or makes sense. Like when you asked for... Anecdotes from playing immersive sims. The one that sprung to mind is one in Deus Ex, where um, I had I started to hack into a terminal that was uh, that could open Gunther's cell and um, on Liberty Island. And as I hacked it, I was looking through the camera uh, that, that shows the view of the room that I was in. I could see myself hacking the, the terminal. And a guard ran in, <laughs> and the guards aren't allowed to shoot you when you're using computers in DSX. <laughs> so you can see me just <laughs> a gun at my head. He it's a <laughs> <So> I'm busy. <laughs> and I had to figure out, like, if I, I was playing on, I think, Realistic, where you just die in one shot from those guys at close range, so I'm like, I can't leave the terminal now, because I'm, I'm die instantly. <laughs> so I had to figure out a way with just the tools I have now to try and block this guy from shooting me, and the turret couldn't shoot him. Um, but I figured out if I open Gunther's door, it'll nudge him a little bit over around the corner <laughs> so that he no longer has line of sight and then I can leave the computer and then I can attack him. I'm, I'm so proud.
0: <laughs> uh, There's not awesome. like a
3: thought in my head that this was like in any way unrealistic or strange or anything. Right. It's just this is amazing. <laughs> well,
2: there were, there were t- uh, two anecdotes. One uh, on Ultima 6, which is kind of where I realized that, that all of this improvisational stuff could, could really be magical. Uh, largely because it was unplanned, it was kind of a bug, but there was um, there was one puzzle where the the avatar and his party came up on on one side of a portcullis, and there was uh, a lever on the other side of the portcullis that you had to flip to raise the portcullis and keep on making progress through the the, the location. And I watched one of our testers, a guy named Mark Shafkin, uh, playing in that area. And he didn't have the telekinesis spell, which was the way to get past that portcullis. And I was sitting there, you know, like rubbing my hands together going, oh, he's screwed. <laughs> he can't do it. And he had a character in his party named Sherry the Mouse. You can probably see where this is going. The portcullis was simulated. And here are the air quotes around simulated. Simulated enough that there was a gap at the bottom that was too small for a human to get through, but not too small for Sherry. And so he sent Sherry the Mouse, one of his party members, under the portcullis over to the lever. She flipped the lever and then the rest of the party went through. I mean, and I fell on the floor and, <laughs> and like at that moment just said to myself, this is this is what games should do. <laughs> and we need to start planning this, not having it happen as a bug. So that was that was where I realized that this was really powerful. Uh, the, the Deus Ex story that kills me, though, is um, a year after we shipped. Uh, I was out in San Francisco at the IDOS offices, and uh, our publisher side uh, QA lead, a guy named Charles Angel, was was playing the game. He was demoing the game for some executives, some IDOS execs. Now, why IDOS executives needed a demo of a game that had shipped a year earlier that had won like 35 Game of the Year awards, I will never understand. But they did. I probably will never work again for having said that out loud. But anyway. <laughs> um, but uh i was watching him on liberty island this is this is a thing that uh, harvey you, i'm sure you set up there was a, a plate well you probably didn't set it up more <laughs> to the point there was a, a spot where there was um uh a guard standing on one side of a doorway there were i can't remember if it was two or three i think it was two guards on patrol on the other side of the doorway and there were laser triggers covering the doorway and and so what he did was he secretly he was sneaking around moving explosive uh, barrels around stuff. I mean, I, I was watching him, and I, I kind of knew what he was setting up, you know. And then he, he crept back, got out the pistol, which was the weakest weapon in the game, and with one shot, took out the guard that was guarding the door, took out the, the laser triggers, and because he had waited for the right exact moment, took out the two guards on the other side of the door with one shot. <laughs> I, and I, I fell on the floor again. Because I I'm completely certain that no human on the face of the earth had ever tried that before. No one on the team I'm sure knew that would. Work. If, Harvey, if you knew that was going to work, I'll buy you lunch next time I see <laughs> you.
4: But no, of course we didn't set those things up explicitly. That's just one of the pleasures, you know. And Warren and I both had this experience, and and we have it now with the prey and dishonored games. Uh, watching going down and watching the QA testers play is just magical because. They chain things together, they use powers in unexpected ways, uh, and then often they require a little support, uh, because to Steve Gaynor's example, um, nowadays the production values have gone up, so you might need animation support and things like that, um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's amazing, and it it's it pokes back, to get back to the critical side of this conversation, Uh Away from the love side so much, it it goes back to <laughs> one of the inherent problems with what we do, uh, which is if I've I'm I'm in my I've played Prey a lot at this point and commented a lot, but I've started uh, instead of playing across many different builds and experimenting with different powers, I'm in one big contiguous playthrough now that I know the game super well. Uh, and it, that, it, that always contextualizes your experience at the end of the project. It's, a, it's magical. There are several steps like that. Another one is taking an Xbox home and playing it on your own rig or whatever. Um, it, it, the environment even changes it for you. But uh, in any case, to, to get back to the critical part, it's like, you know, yes, we have a game that if you play twice or three times or four times and you become a virtuoso with the systems and understanding the narrative and the world little epiphanies are popping off in your head all the time and you're having these improvisational experiences. Uh, in Prey, I'm, I'm not only doing that game mechanically, but I'm doing that narratively and emotionally. Like with, uh, I, I gave an example, I won't spoil anything, but I gave an example to Ricardo yesterday or, or Friday related to what something one of the monsters mutters, one of the typhons mutters, and how it connects back to a human in the world who has a real history and all that. I think we've
5: talked about that, if you want to mention it. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're choosing your words really carefully
4: right now, aren't
5: you?
4: <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the point is, if you've played a lot, you you get a lot out of these games. You get so much out of them. But the downside is, if you haven't played, you struggle initially with the sheer complexity of it, or uh, you're thrown right in. It, it almost works like a novel, like where to understand to fully understand it you, feel you 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 have to have seen the beginning middle and end you know it's they're very complicated economically and narratively and in terms of systems and in order to make them sing you kind of have to be a performer you have to you have to practice and mm-hmm. learn yeah. uh, whereas other games are just you drop in and you're you look like a badass instantly you know even if you're following a trail of breadcrumbs and kicking off a sequence of scripted events over and over
0: so I'd like to dig in a little bit to the process of creating and designing a, an immersive sim. I think most people who pay attention to video games know that it, it's not like a linear creation process where you build it from beginning to end and uh, beginning of the story to the end. It's A game is usually not really playable or fun or complete until very late right, in development. And in the case of immersive sims, you're potentially talking about a dozen systems from AI to weather to hacking or, you know, combat, all these incredibly complex things. How do you go about building these and testing them uh, when, when it's not fun or when certain things aren't online, when it's only half complete, you know, what's, what's the process of choosing all those elements and then testing how they work together?
1: I mean, I think that is a really interesting question for the the guys here who have worked on the, the big titles because i actually um you know i've worked on basically sequels to immersive you know i worked on bioshock 2 and, and infinite but i didn't work on the original bioshock and obviously that's a kind of a continuation of system shock 2 so like i actually I, I'm, I'm interested to know you know when you are building a game that is based on this you know bedrock of, of multiple strata of systems do you guys try to like Block in as much of all the different like player abilities and AI systems as you can as early as possible, or is it kind of like an ongoing, you know, glazing of what if we added this, what if we added this over a long period of time?
5: Uh, there's a, I think there's a, a lot we could say there, um, but some, <laughs> of <it> is, <laughs> some of it is, some of it is what you're saying, Steve. Um, like, I think we try to get a a sixty percent version of as much of as possible in. As quickly as possible Uh, because part of the fun of course is not just the thing existing in isolation but when it interacts with all the other systems uh, uh, people have likened it a little bit to like making a stew like individual elements are not that great together they're okay but like and then they have to sort of like live together in the pot for a while so that you can sort of begin identifying that like oh this one mechanic doesn't really contribute very much Uh, this other one though we should like double down on and so by the end of the you know, maybe we make, you know, I don't know, 25% more than necessary, like mechanics that end up getting stripped out by the end. And then we uh, focus on the ones that are really successful in the whole mix altogether.
1: Yeah, because it feels like there's like it's inherent to this kind of game that for it actually to be the game at all that there's, like, this critical mass that's required, right? Like, you can't work on on Dishonored for six months and only have, like, two player powers, right? Because it's just, like, not relevant to what it's going to end up being. But also, obviously, you don't just write your perfect design Bible and you're like, here's the dozen powers and exactly what all the enemies can do and just make it. So finding that balance must be really challenging. Design
2: documents are always right. (laughs) Uh, There was one point on Deus Ex where the documentation was 500 pages, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, It was ridiculous. Um, the final version was 270 pages that nobody read. Uh, anyway, uh, the the interesting thing about about making this kind of game is you guys are all right until those systems are online. You basically don't even know what you have, and uh, that's why you know alpha is the point on a game like this where the game is is complete and finishable and playable and sucks. Uh, and and so to to make this all work. It's the money guys love this. It's like while you're while you're working on it, you know, the first 2 years or whatever it is, you know, the game is is not there. It's not there. It's not there. And everybody's going, "Oh my god, they're they're biting their fingernails down to the nub." And because they're giving you all this money and they can't see the game yet, and you just have to go and say, "Relax, it'll be okay. Everything'll come together." And then you hope they give you enough time in alpha. At least this is my take on it. They give you enough time in alpha to to make it right. I mean, like we on, on Deus Ex we implemented the skill system that, that a couple of us came up with uh pretty early on uh we I think I think we actually got to Alpha with that in there and and then we invited guys like Doug Church and Mark LeBlanc and Rob Fermier and, and even I think Gabe Newell came down and they played it, and they they just said, "Wow, this, this skill system really sucks." And I think it was like 24 hours later, Harvey, you had a completely redesigned skill system. Thank God, uh, because it wasn't at all what we thought we were going to make. You know, it, until we played it and saw it in context with all the other systems, it's like you're just taking your best guess. It's it's terrifying.
4: Yeah, I I wish Rafael Colantonio was on the line with us today. He's traveling to these D- GDC, but one of the things he talks about a lot is how much iteration games like this actually require and how flexible a studio has to be and how you have to train the team not to think like traditional developers. You have to be willing to react very quickly because so much of this kind of game is a synergy and only the magic only happens very late, like Warren is saying. And I can tell you from experience, sometimes they don't give you the money to finish it to get that final three months or whatever. Uh, But in almost all the best cases of this type of games, the ones we've worked on here and the ones that friends have worked on, uh, Deus Ex, uh, Dishonored, Bioshock, you hear these stories about how things almost came together at the end, but then we got three more months or six more months, and then we just started hitting it with the the magic in place and you know by contrast you have developers who say on day one you need a loop and if that loop is fun you just iterate it and your game will be fun if your game is not fun on day one your game will never be fun <laughs> i like fight that sort of every like dogmatic, day <laughs> uh, blueprint approach you know and it's like well for some games that is true if they if they entirely depend on one arcade game loop then yeah probably But these games are something different. They're they're a sense of presence, they're exploration, they're player pacing, they're toying with systems, and they really rely on this gestalt. Yeah, and I think there's
1: something interesting about kind of what you're, you're saying about those last three or six months that maybe get added on that can also be, I think, extended to things like DLC and like sequels, like direct sequels, in that, you know... I worked on Bioshock 2, which was a direct sequel to Bioshock 1, and then I was the lead designer on the story DLC for Bioshock 2. And at that point, you, as a developer, you're kind of in that space of saying, this has been developed so, you know, I wouldn't say completely, but like to such a degree that you have the familiarity with it and you have the stable base to say, now our job is to know this stuff well enough to do something really good and really interesting with it that you don't find in that initial you know build out and maybe you know that's kind of what you're doing in those last extra three or six months you're like we spent all this time making the game now we know what it is and we can actually use this time to express what we've we've learned that we might not have been able to otherwise and i know ricardo um you worked on the dishonored one dlc right uh yeah absolutely the knife of
5: dunwall and uh, brickmore witches stuff
1: yeah and so you know i i think that's that's sort of an extension of that idea of these games are such a—you um, uh, know—the—the—the—the the, 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 the end product is greater than some of its parts. And having that ability as a as a designer and as a developer to say, "I'm going to work within that established space and and do things with it that I wouldn't have even thought of or wouldn't have even known how to do earlier in the process," um, I think is is kind of especially relevant when you're making games of kind of this complexity and and this relation to the player's role
3: there's also a a huge like technical uh benefit of being that late in the project like you have to build particularly with these systems driven games you have to build the systems and then once you've done that making like a new ability or a new item is actually almost trivial like it's just you hook it into the systems that already exist and the whole point of these games is those systems have to be consistent they have to be universal and so you've got to get that right first anyway and then once you've done that making an ability that uses those systems is super easy. Like, I've just hit this point in heat signature, so I'm right. excited about it, yeah. because now if I want to make, like, a, a gun that hacks things when you shoot it, it's uh, so literally just create a gun, add the mm-hmm. hack property, hack damage type to it, and it's just done. I right. The game And it just works, and I can yeah. make it rechargeable, and I can yeah. make it have this kind of ammo. At all.
1: Well, and that, that even happens in, you know, a story game like ours that is not about, like, these deep, like, dynamic interactive systems, but as a content creator, I think that you know making these kinds of games the arc is really on like a logarithmic scale you know it's sort of ramping and then you hit that tipping point of you know now when when we're working on tacoma i have enough of the tools to say like oh my god this room is so empty it needs stuff in it and then you work on it for a day and you're like oh we've built enough that you can make this feel very populated and very unique and like a real place very quickly in a way that you couldn't have earlier or you know you can say oh i know how our ar character system works I can extend this scene that we already have to do something else because we've we've been kind of like building up those those tools over time and then once you have the toolbox which takes a long time to get to and you have the familiarity with what all of those tools can actually do that ability to to, to quickly and kind of very creatively extend what you already have into things that that feel very unique and memorable to the player finally appears um
5: yeah that's one of the what you're citing is like one of the reasons i actually love uh, being finished with the main game and getting the chance to work on DLCs, because you have that, you have that baseline there that you can build on top of, and it's so easy to add things. Like the, like uh, in the Dishonored DLC, it was really fun to get to experiment with Corvo's uh, base powers in order to make make new powers for uh, Dowd, uh, the main character in the DLC. So like the, adding the ability for Dow to uh, when he targets his blink power, the the whole game is frozen. So it's more like a tactical, thoughtful consideration where you're going to blink like that. That is only possible because the main game, all, all that stuff was already executed and established, and then we could sort of play in that sandbox.
2: You, you do need to be thinking about improvisation, player improvisation early, though. I, on, on Deus Ex, uh, we, we did build those you know, proto missions, I guess. I, I think that, that's what I call them. I don't remember if anybody else did. Uh, but we built that White House mission where everything was sort of hacked together. Which didn't show how the game was going to play, but showed the potential of it. And now I, I can't really talk much about System Shock Three, but uh, I will say that we're we're just beginning to prototype a bunch of stuff. And if you think about giving players the ability to improv early, you can start to see the fruits of that early. Uh, we we built one one thing out where that I should not be talking about this, uh, <laughs> but we built one thing out where. Um, there, there, you know, there are a couple of ways you can get past a problem, but I found one that no one, no one knew was going to work. And instead of it taking you know, five, six minutes to, to play through this space, I did it in 10, 10 seconds. <laughs> and uh, it, it was pretty magical when I, I figured out something that no one on the team knew was going to work even early. Uh, and we've got another system that I'm not going to talk about that we've started prototyping. And already, we're starting to see people you know, use it, like family and, and friends testers. They're starting to do things with it that we had no idea would work, and when you start to see that even early on, it's it's the magic of these games. It's what makes them different. Uh, if if everybody knows, I mean, if everybody on the development team know team knows what every player is going to do, my advice to them is just go make a movie. You know. I so,
0: mean- so we've got a, a few minutes left uh, before we need to head off to other uh, GDC events um but does anyone have a question they want to ask anybody else here about the games they worked on or or, or anything else uh, and then we'll have one closing question yeah could you guys stop working on prey <laughs> <laughs> we we are about to stop
2: working on <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can't wait to play
1: it yeah i'm i'm super excited about it and yeah i guess there's Three of us in the room right now they're making space station games but uh you guys <laughs> get to ship yours first congrats <laughs> or i mean i assume so i guess you guys haven't uh announced a release date but it's got to be soon right i don't know Nate, god damn it i hope that you guys don't ship the same time as us
3: is that your question when's your release yeah date? When you
1: really, can, can
5: you announce a release date please? it's uh may 5th Oh, yeah, it's, wow. it's on the trailer. It's, it's oh, okay. There. That it's has been there. announced? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So
2: you,
4: you, fine. You guys get to be first. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, um, honestly, I say this with all humility because I didn't work on Prey. It's a it's a game made by the Austin studio with uh, Ricardo and Raph and Seth and those guys, Susan, running the show. And um, it is one of the best games I've ever played. And uh, I tweeted something recently about you know, having finished Dishonored 2 and now looking at Prey back-to-back, Brian Eno had this write-up, and it, it really made me stop and think about me as creator versus me as what I like to play, me as player, and uh, it's really an interesting contrast. And I've in my career, I don't think I've ever had the, the opportunity to do this back-to-back within the same studio, per se, uh, where we, we finish one game and we're about to finish another game with a different team. And uh, just to look at the two and look at decisions that they made differently than I would have made, and it's, uh, yet I love both games. I mean, I think Dishonored 2 is the best thing I've ever done, and I think Prey is one of the best games I've ever played, And but they're very different in their decisions and how they achieve, how they arrive at certain decisions is, is fascinating to me. Um, so May 5th, yeah.
0: Cool. So I'd like to, to close with a, a question um, that kind of looking beyond Prey and looking at where immersive sims are gonna be going in the next few years, you know the, the far-off future of 2020. Uh, what, what do we still have to improve in immersive sims? You know, what have they not quite cracked yet? Is it AI? Is it uh, elements of level design, maybe moving beyond you know, the conveniently human-sized vents placed uh, on the backs of buildings? <laughs> like, yeah, like where, where are we going next? I think non-combat
2: AI is an area where games in general really have some work to do. Uh, if in in the more linear you know cinematic games that we're not talking about today, I think there are some pretty pretty amazing things going on. But in terms of characters that can react to you, whether they hate you or love you or you know are neutral towards you, we still have a lot of work to do on that front. Uh, so I would say non combat AI is is one, and accessibility is another. I mean we talk about that a bunch, but making this so normal humans, non gamers. Mm-hmm can actually get to this so we're not just you know making cult classics we're making mainstream you know mainstream games that that show the world what games can and should be Uh, accessibility is a big problem for us
3: coming this from the indie side of things i'm excited about uh stuff to do with the kind of structure and format around the actual kind of missions that you do so in a triple a immersive sim it's almost always a story that is told from beginning to end and you um there's maybe some branching but um you're playing as one character throughout the whole thing and so uh i think that problem i was talking about earlier with people feeling obliged to stick to one play style even when they are not enjoying it kind of stems from that and so i'm uh trying a game where you, each character you play as is a new life, and every time you die, you know, it's perma-death. But each time you uh, restart, you're a new person with random like uh, inventory and stuff. And I'm suddenly finding like loads of immersive sim problems kind of go away if you have if you just change the structure completely. You know, this is a completely uh, different format of game, and this is just like a baby step towards it with Heat Signature. But I'm excited to see what other people do with that. Um, you know, as you know, road are a big uh trend in indie games and I would just want to see that mashed into immersive Sims as in as many ways as possible because I think right. there's some really interesting things to happen there. Yeah. Like the thing about uh, play playstyles, uh I just have a missions listing board and I've just realized recently like well I've just added the ability to have missions that you have to do stealthily, like the, the, you fail this mission if you get spotted. And so you can just work playstyles into a mission listing board, then let people pick which one I want to do and then it's just kind of natural that they would vary if they want to.
1: Yeah. I mean I from from the other side of indie development you know, something that I think is really um, fascinating and valuable about Immersive Sims as a lineage is it's a very long lineage that has um, kind of um, continued to accrete properties over time, right? And so, Warren, you've been there for the entire uh, mm-hmm. run. And- yeah, th- thanks for reminding me of my <laughs> age. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, but, you know, you're working on Ultimate Underworld and you're working on um, System Shock 1. And something that, you know our approach um, to exploring that as a small independent developer is basically rewinding the timeline and removing factors and thinking of it in terms of if we went back to an earlier point in in kind of what these games are and explored a branch from there and tried to find aspects of that experience that are inherent to it but maybe that kind of have not been the focus um, in a lot of ways that I guess what i'm saying is you know to your question um west that there's one way of looking at this is like where do what immersive sims have become go next and how do we solve more problems or add more on And i think there's this incredible potential to saying like well but what have they been and what was not on kind of the main trunk of where they've 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 gotten to and what else is there because you know you you think of now an immersive sim and you think of things like uh, you know, play upgradable player powers, and um, you know AIs that that have emergent abilities when they interact with each other, and having an economy so that you can buy equipment and all this stuff. But um, you know, when I was working on Minerva's Den, and then it was you know a reference forward um, design wise, and we were working on Gone Home, I, I replayed System Shock One, and it was sort of a surprise to me to realize there is no skill tree, there is no economy. This is about a place. And you as a character with a role in it and you know it has enemies and it it has like you know different ways that you can address problems in it but there's so much that we think of as being part of what an immersive sim is that is really just like the version of it we've arrived at and so being able to say like system shock one it's an immersive sim because it has a sense of place and it has you being able to fulfill a role within that space. And so a game like Gone Home is kind of an exploration of how do we apply that to a mundane setting? How do we apply that to a space that's maybe more familiar to you? How do we apply that to something where, you know, finding the audio diaries is the actual game, you know, not just like a thing that you do while you're playing the game. Um, and and so continuing to to kind of explore what else is already inside of Immersive Sims, I think is is a really exciting thing to be able to do.
2: It's in some sense, actually, System Shock is the purest expression of what the immersive simulation can and should be. I mean, it, it, all of the the character stats, you know, and upgradable this and economy that, all that stuff you were talking about, uh, it, it kind of turns things into a hybrid RPG immersive sim uh, thing yeah. that I love. I mean, don't get me wrong. I absolutely adore that kind of game, but... In a sense, if you're talking about absolute purest form of, of the genre, it's for me, it's it's always going to be System Shock. So
0: I'd love to get uh, uh, Harvey and Ricardo on this one, um, but I need to whisk Steve away in the meantime so he can make his next uh, appointment.
1: Okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you guys for for having me. And sorry I have to bail out before the very end of this conversation, but it's
5: been awesome talking to you all. All right. Bye. All right. Bye, bye see Steve. You guys. Really looking forward to Tacoma, man.
1: Oh,
0: thank you so much, and congrats on uh, on Pre. I'm looking forward to making Thanks. it. <laughs> all right guys yeah sorry to interrupt if you want to give some some closing thoughts on the future
5: um i think uh i don't have anything specific to say uh other than the thing that it's that's exciting to me is to um see like uh you know steve was talking about like the different different ways it's affected other games and i'm really interested in in sort of like the family tree or the lineage of immersive sims and see and see how that like, bleeds into other games. Because I don't... You know, there, there's sort of a core essence to Immersive Sims, but I I think... I, I love it when people experiment with that thing. Like, it, I think an, an Immersive... A game that draws from Immersive Sims doesn't have to be first-person, for instance, right? Like, there, there are some 2D games that sort of have that same fundamental philosophy of, like, strong sense of place plus, like, very expressive, interconnected game mechanics and uh, that have been that have come from being you know the developers were fans of immersive sims and that's why they made the game that way and so i love i love seeing more expressions of that sort of development philosophy in other genres and independent games uh i'm just trying to think of a i don't have a super recent example but like i really loved mark of the ninja um, i don't know if you guys have played that great
0: game yeah from Clay.
5: but you know that's a two, 2d game uh or or, or you know side scroller i guess uh and um But just the way that you play that game, uh, it's, you know, it's clearly founded on similar principles, like just the open-ended nature of the game mechanics are super fun. And I love seeing that in other games. And like Steve was saying, um, the the Gone Home and Tacoma-like games are, you know, they're more stripped down uh, than the giant AAA action immersive sim. Uh, But they're an interesting, interesting offshoot. And so I want to see... I look forward to seeing more things like that, more things that are offshoots uh, that come come from that lineage.
0: Anything from from Harvey?
4: Yeah, I mean, in part, I would just echo what other people have said, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately, um, and the thought that comes up over and over is purity. Um, Right now we have a lot of stuff that we've accreted that we put in, I think, either through legacy or because commercial audiences demand a game of a certain size in order to pay a certain amount for it. Uh, and just to do one of these games, the with AI, for instance, uh, uh, you know, with with physics interaction, with the scope of the game, the development budget is pretty large. And so there are all these forces that kind of pressure you to go one way or the other. You either go full-on where it's got tons of stuff in it and uh, layers and layers and lots of different uh, ways for the player to switch playstyles as they're going, Um, or you go the other way and you strip it all down to the bare essence and then find something interesting, whether it's the setting or a particular form of interaction, a particular tool, and elevate that and one of those works better in the commercial space and one works better in the indie space. But uh, uh, for my money, I would love to have, you know, the opportunity to just play around with uh, what is the minimum here. Because I wouldn't, like I appreciate the hell out of games like Gone Home, of course, because it was innovative and revolutionary in terms of subject matter and um, the sort of feel as you play the game. It was one of my favorite games that year. Um but our games are so big in terms of economy and uh, you know s- sheer scope um, that I would I would love to make a, a more stripped down game, but I wouldn't want to sacrifice that magic moment that happens when you manage to get a turret up on the roof and hack it to your alliance, and then somebody you weren't expecting comes around the cor- corner and your turret opens up on them, but uh, you happen to be in the line of fire. You know, a whole sequence of crazy improv events happen that you have to react to. Um, you know, some of the stuff is not just accreted baggage. Some of it is where the actual synergistic gameplay comes from, where it lives. And so, yeah, it's it's thinking about how much do you need and which do you need uh, that I think is, uh, and not just like painting by numbers, you know, oh, it's an immersive sim. Let's make the first code 0451 and add a, a crafting system or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting and I don't know, the future is bright for deeply interactive games with a sense of presence.
3: The other thing I'm excited for for the future of Immersive Sims is I hope we come up with a better name.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah. was going to
3: actually ask,
0: I don't, I don't know if it's common knowledge where the term came from, if it was a Kieran Gillen coin term or if it, it predated his his writing on the genre. Um, I think but, Doug Church is the one who came up
2: with that, isn't
0: he? That's <laughs> a, He's
4: the first person i I don't know. I, I remember a conversation with rob fermier i think on twitter where we were trying to figure out where that term had come from and i think rob's conclusion was that he first heard it from doug as well yeah and we That's all funny. hated it it's like funny. it's it,
2: it 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 fell out of favor for a while and recently it seems like it's come back it's very odd
0: is it i mean has anyone come up with a description they like better
5: no uh i don't know if it's better but like we typically I Like when we're talking in generally to the press or gamers, we avoid the term just because it sounds very inside baseball. Like who knows, who even knows what what that is. Um, so we we say first person games with depth uh, instead, and then elaborate, you know, on what what the depth is. But it it is kind like,
4: of technical. Um, I like FPS RPG hybrid. Yeah, that works too.
2: Genre mashup,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, so maybe by maybe by 2020 we'll have decided on a new name for for the immersive <laughs> sim. Uh, well, I wish we could keep doing this. I, I could literally do this all day. Uh, makes Makes my job easy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you guys for joining me. Uh, and we have yeah, a thank week you. of GDC to get to. Um, but we should we should do it again. Maybe we can make an an annual immersive sim roundtable or yeah. something.
2: Cool. Sounds great. I'll have something to talk about next year. (laughs) All right. Thanks (laughs)
0: Thanks again, guys. Bye, guys. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.